I kind of missed that saxophone from the last video we did, but it's still pretty good. Everybody doing okay? Good out there? Good, good, good. Um, so I was told to, uh, to politely ask you guys, uh, make sure you scoot in sometimes so people aren't hanging out in the back without seats. So it's bad enough you have to listen to me for 45 minutes, but if you have to do it standing up, I mean, that's darn near torture, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's pretty bad. So glad you guys are here. Um, welcome. We are starting a new book of the Bible, which isn't too different from the one we just covered. We just covered the book of 1 Timothy, um, which has been challenging, not because it's difficult to understand, but because it addresses a lot of very difficult things um, that still apply to our lives. And so we worked through 1 Timothy, uh, got through it. We're going to move on to what is kind of the natural next step, and that is the book of 2 Timothy, which is also, of course, in the New Testament. It's right after 1 Timothy. And if you're new to the church, this is what we do. We take a book of the Bible, we go through it word for word, line by line. And that's a great way to learn. It's also sometimes very difficult because you can't skip over the hard stuff, right? So we're gonna see even today that, that we just get into stuff that's, that's tough sometimes, but that's okay. The tough stuff in the Bible is what really sharpens us, makes us better, brings us closer to God, and it's, uh, it's good to cover that stuff. If you weren't here last week, we talked about this, and I, I, I kind of beat everyone up last week, and, and uh, maybe I went too far with that, but we talked about the fact that we need to take our faith seriously. Why? Because eternity is on the line, right? I mean, this is a big deal. And so we talked about the fact, and Paul kind of ended his first letter to this young man, Timothy, that he loves very much. He ended it with protect this, guard this, take this seriously, right? So we asked ourselves, how seriously do we take this? You know, our faith determines how we treat our spouse, how we raise our children, how society functions, how culture looks. It affects our salvation. Like, that, that's a big deal, right? So we need to take it seriously. This week, we're gonna talk about this. And this will make a lot more sense kind of at the end. But Paul wrote in another book of the Bible that we are called to plant, we're called to water, but we can't make anything grow. God makes things happen. So what we're gonna talk about a little bit today, and this will make a lot more sense at the end, is that we're to prepare things, but it is God that makes change, okay? So we prepare ourselves, we prepare our relationships, we prepare, again, our schools and, and our jobs. We prepare kind of the environment, but it is God that makes the change in those areas. That's what we're gonna talk about a little bit today. So you should have received a notes handout, regardless of which side you walked in. Uh, it has everything I'm gonna say in there. Everything should be on the screens around the room if you didn't get a notes handout. If you have a smartphone, which is pretty much all of you nowadays. I remember I didn't get my first phone until I was 22, right? Now you see like nine-year-olds who are like getting texts, and I'm like, what are you texting, right? Like, like what's so important for a nine-year-old to know? Anyways, so if you have a smartphone, if you click on the Experience Community app, because I know all of you have it, right? Click on Service Times and Sermon Notes, and everything is there for you, and we should be in pretty good shape, okay? If you have a Bible, we're in the New Testament. Second Timothy falls right after First Timothy. There's your help in finding that, so. All right, I'm gonna pray. We will jump into this, and um, we'll see the Lord takes us, okay? All right. Lord, I just wanna tell you thank you. God, thank you, Lord, for everyone that came out this morning. Um, God, it's really nice to see such a full house this morning. God, I pray, Lord, that your word sharpens our church this morning, that it uh, builds us up, God, that it encourages us and challenges us, Lord. 
We pray, Lord, not only for our church, we pray for every church in our community this morning. Every church in our city, our county, God, the churches we work with up in New England, the churches we work with on the other side of the world and our missionaries there, God, and we just pray that you keep your hand on us, Lord. We pray that everything we do, um, that it sharpens us, God, and that it ultimately brings you all the glory and honor and makes you proud. God, keep your hand on FCA, the nonprofit that we're working with this month, God, and uh, Lord, the awesome people that give their time for that ministry and go into high schools and middle schools and work with athletes, Lord. We love you, God, and we pray blessings over them. God, keep your hand on us, Lord. We pray all these things today in your son's name, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm gonna read a little bit. I'm gonna go back and break it down to the best of my abilities, okay? Paul writes to Timothy. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will for the sake of the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly loved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. Remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I recall your sincere faith first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and now I am convinced is in you also. Now listen, if you didn't notice in the very beginning of this, there's a lot of very endearing words, right? There's obviously this connection between this older man, Paul, and this younger protege, Timothy. Now look, when you read the Bible, context is vitally important. I say this a lot in this church. You have to understand who wrote it, to who it is written to, or to whom it is written to, and what the context is around it. Now when you read that, it's striking, but it's even more striking when you understand that Paul is awaiting his execution. He's in a Roman cell. He is very, very close to being beheaded, and he knows this may be the last correspondence that he ever has with one of his closest friends, a young man named Timothy. Now, that completely changes the dynamics of what we just read, doesn't it? When you understand the context we also see that Paul, as he's getting close to the end of his life, understands more than ever who he is and what his role is. And he reiterates to Timothy, he says, I'm an apostle. Now we say that word apostle a lot, right? It's in the Bible a lot, we say it a lot in church. We throw that term around sometimes, not really understanding how big of a term it is. Apostle simply means one that is sent from God. In the context of the Bible though, an apostle was someone that contributed to creating the Bible, one of the authors of the Bible, and typically someone that had seen Jesus Christ. Paul had seen Jesus Christ after the resurrection. That story is in the book of Acts, right? So you can go back and read that. But he saw Jesus Christ, the resurrected Christ. And so as time moves on, things should become more clear. As Paul was facing death, he understood his authority that God had given him more. He understood his purpose. He understood what was truly important, which were his relationships with other people, his relationship with God. Now listen, that should be the case for all of us in this room. As we get older, as we mature in our faith, if you're a Christian in here, the things that are truly important to us should become more of a laser focus, right? If you meet people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe even in their 90s who lived a lot of life, 
even if they have been successful and they've accumulated wealth, they've accumulated nice things, if you ask them what they wanna do with their time, what's most important, they'll say, my family, my marriage, my relationship with God, the things that are truly important. All of us in this room, the more we get close to God, the more we get close to our death, the things that are truly important should become more and more focused and a higher priority in our life. So Paul was reminiscing, right? He's at the end of his life almost. And he reminisced about his own family heritage and his relationship with Timothy. And he thanked God that Timothy had a good upbringing, that he had people in his life that taught him about Jesus Christ. Now listen, Timothy's dad was a Greek, which means that he probably was not a Christian, right? He didn't teach him. But Paul says, man, thank God, Timothy, you had a grandmother that believed, you had a mother that believed, and they passed this belief, this, this relationship with Jesus Christ. They taught you the importance of having a relationship with the true God. They taught him the gospel. Now that's wonderful. But after saying that, Paul also says to Timothy, he says, your grandmother had a great faith, your mom had a great faith, and he says, now I'm confident that you have a great faith, you have a sincere faith. What that means is we cannot inherit salvation from anyone else. In the South, right, I'm gonna pick on us Christians in the South, well, I'm sixth generation Christian. That's fantastic, but what about you? What have you done? I know what your grandparents have done, I know what your parents have done, what have you done? Have you taken ownership for your faith? Now, just because your parents have taught you the gospel, listen, I'm gonna get on a, a kind of a slippery slope that may make some of you upset, but even if we believe what is right, if we don't act on it, we don't have sincere faith. Amen. Listen, even the demons in hell, James says, believe in Jesus Christ and know he's the savior of the world, but they're in hell. So just because you've been taught the truth, if you don't act on it, you don't have sincere faith. It is a balance and it is a combination of both proper belief and proper action that constitutes true faith. And salvation is a personal transaction. No one can do it for you. No one can do it for you. You have to accept Jesus Christ. You have to choose to live a life according to what he wants you to do. Now, after saying that though, that doesn't get you parents off the hook. You guardians, not even if you're, if you're not a parent, but if you're an older person in this room, the teaching and training of the generation coming after us, we are responsible for that. We're not responsible for the results. We can't control the results. We are to plant the seed of the gospel. We're to water that. We're to foster and cultivate and build relationships. What people decide to do is outside of our, our scope. We can't do that but we are called to plant and water and foster. And when we neglect our children, when we neglect the, the generation coming out uh, after us, when we mislead our children or mislead the generation coming after us, there are serious consequences for that. Jesus Christ says in the book of Matthew, you can go back and read it. He says it's better for you to kill yourself than to mislead children. Jesus says that, Jesus didn't say that, he did. He got into detail. He said, it's better that you tie a stone around your neck and jump in a lake. That's what Jesus said. Because raising up the next generation is very, very important to God. Now, here's where I'm gonna make some of you mad. It's not the public school system's job to raise your kids. Hold on, hold on, before you clap. All you 
not all you Christians, some you know, ambiguous Christians out there will often say, we need prayer back in school. We need prayer back in school. And I'm like, listen, those teachers don't get paid to pray with your kids. That is your responsibility. You're to be praying with your kids. Got nothing against prayer. Prayer is wonderful. But your English teacher is not gonna be held accountable for raising your children. You are. You are. And your children should be well prayed up before they ever get on the bus and go to school. It should happen in your homes. Listen, here's the other side of that. If we, because we live in a secular society, if we start pushing that we need Christian prayers in schools, because we live in a secular society, they're gonna open the floodgate for every other religious prayer in school. That's why theology and the teaching of fearing and loving God comes from the parent. It doesn't say in the Bible, school systems train up your kids in the ways of, no, no, no. Parents, train up your kids in the way of Lord and they will not depart from the faith. That's what it says. It is our responsibility and we keep passing that blame off to everyone else where I, Corey Trimble, am gonna have to stand in front of Christ and give an account on how I raised my children, right? Your children are not my responsibility, they're yours. My children are my responsibility and I will be held accountable for it, okay? All right, sorry. It just gets worse, guys, here we go. All right. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. So Paul tells Timothy, you need to rekindle this fire. Paul has already established, Timothy, you come from a good background, a good heritage. You have a sincere faith. But he says, listen, that's not the end of it. You have to keep fanning that flame. Now, what is the gift of God that Paul is talking about? The gift of God is the Holy Spirit. If you are in this room and you consider yourself a Christian, if you have given your life to Jesus Christ, sincerely given your life to Jesus Christ, the book of Ephesians says you are sealed by the gift of the Holy Spirit. You have God's Spirit with you. Now, without this gift of the Holy Spirit, we are incapable of being Christians. We are incapable of living the way God wants us to live. And we have to fan that flame. We have to keep that fire burning. Now the Holy Spirit is referred to as several things in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit of God is referred to the comforter, the counselor. It's also referred to as a fire. How do we keep that fire going? We have to choose to live a life of discipline. Simply put, we need to pray. I say this probably every single week. But you guys need to talk to the Lord. You need to pray. We need to come to church. We need to read the word of God. And when we come to church, when we pray, when we read the, the word of God, what we're gonna be doing is we're going to be planting seeds and watering seeds. And from that seed, you're gonna have the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Goodness and gentleness and self-control and all these wonderful things that kind of come up and arise out of planting those seeds. But in other words, if you're going to have the fruit of the Spirit rise up, it's going to take work, okay? It means that we have to intentionally do some things in order to see some things produced in our lives. But here's the beauty of having a relationship with Jesus. We don't do this work alone. We're not alone in this. He helps us. Our relationship with God is kind of this weird circular thing that the more we push into him, the more he pushes into us and reciprocates and, and it just keeps going and going and going. And we have the Holy Spirit to help us grow and to be what we should and 
The Holy Spirit helps us fan the flame, which makes the flame bigger so we have more strength to fan the flame. And this relationship with God is a two-way street. What's interesting about that two-way street, though, is Jesus benefits nothing from us. (laughs) Nothing. We have nothing to give God. God doesn't need us. But that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Though he doesn't need us, he wants us. He wants a relationship with us. We're the only ones that benefit. God's perfect without us. We're the ones that are dependent on him. But God tells us in the book of James, he says, if you step near to me, I'll step near to you. If you draw close to me, I'll draw close to you. So God is looking at us saying, how close do you wanna get, right? How deep do you wanna go? I'll go as deep as you wanna go. I'll go as far as you wanna go. How close do you wanna get, right? It's up to us. Now, Paul also realizes that sometimes life is hard and sometimes it's easy to be afraid. We've all been afraid. Timothy was afraid. But Paul looks at Timothy and he says, Timothy, God is not the source of that fear. God is not the source of that anxiety. That is not God. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but God has given us a spirit of power. That doesn't mean that there's not moments of fear or anxiety. That doesn't mean that there's not times when we're afraid of the future. But here's the thing. Our natural tendency to be afraid eventually should be overcome by the supernatural power of God that is in us. This may hurt some of your feelings. I do not believe and I will never be convinced that it is God's design that we live by debilitating anxiety, depression, overwhelming sadness and fear. I don't think it's God's design. I know that upsets some of you guys. You know why? Because some of you find your identity in your anxiety. Hashtag depression, right? Hashtag sad, hashtag lonely. I think some of you find your identity in those things and you don't wanna be delivered of those things. I believe God has the power to do it. And so many people tell me, well, Corey, I was just born this way. That's awesome. We're born into all kinds of sin and all kinds of brokenness. That's why Jesus said to a man named Nicodemus, you have to be born again. You have to be born a second time because the old person dies and a new person is created in Christ. But the problem with Christianity right now is we have a lot of faith in oils and medication and all kinds of weird Eastern philosophies. A lot of Christians have very little faith in the fact that Jesus Christ delivers. Every single one of us in this room has the capability of overcoming fear the capability of loving people, the capability of making sound judgment. Why? Because you're good? Absolutely not. But because the Holy Spirit of God resides in us and he's good. We have the power to get better. Hold on to the power of sound teaching that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Am I reading the right part? I'm not. Let me go back. Sorry, you guys are like, what is he doing? (laughs) Skipped a whole chunk there. So don't be ashamed of the, some of you are like, we're gonna get out of here early. Awesome, right? No, (laughs) no. (laughs) So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with his holy calling, not according to our works, 
but according to his own purpose, grace, which was given to us in Christ before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and who has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, a teacher, and that is why I suffer these things. But I'm not ashamed because I know whom I believe and I've persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. What Paul is saying is he's secure in who he is. Again, not because Paul is good. Paul called himself the worst sinner ever. But Paul is secure in who Christ is in him. He says, I'm not ashamed of the story of Jesus Christ. And he says, Timothy, you shouldn't be ashamed of it, nor should you be ashamed of these teachings of the apostles, the authors of the Bible. Now, here's what we're to do. We're to clearly live out our faith, right? Act like Christians. We're to speak about our faith. When the opportunity arises, we are to tell people about our faith. And we're also to tell people about our personal testimonies. One of the best ways to connect with someone, at least for me in my experience, when I talk to someone, I tell people how I overcame drug addiction, how I overcame debilitating depression and anxiety and things like that by the power of God, right? And that resonates with them. And so tell people your story. Tell them where you came from, what God has done. Not only that, we're also to identify with Jesus in suffering. We're not to go out and look for suffering or look for hardships. But when Paul says that we share in the suffering of Christ, it means that we must be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of what Jesus has taught us, for the sake of Jesus. But there's been this false narrative in Christianity in the United States that Christians are never supposed to suffer, right? We're never supposed to go through anything bad. And that's just not biblical. When we do go through suffering, when we do go through hard times, we should find that an honor that we suffer for the Lord that suffered for us. That should be an honor for us to go through that. So Paul also reminds Timothy that we are not saved by what we have done. I don't know if you know this or not, Christianity is the only religion on planet earth that teaches that we are saved not by things that we do, but by what God has done for us. We are the only religion on planet earth that teaches that. Every other religion teaches that you have to do these things and then you will be saved. And Jesus teaches us the opposite. You'll be saved and then I want you to do these things, right? We're saved by God's grace, by his work on the cross, not anything we've done. But that doesn't mean that we're not responsible. I'm gonna rip this off of Josh Brooker. I gotta give him some credit every once in a while. But Josh used to always say this, he would say, we're not saved by our works, but we're not saved from our works either. What that means is this, is once we're saved, we're supposed to do good works. We're supposed to love people. We're supposed to live holy lives. We're supposed to serve mankind. We're supposed to serve God. Goes back to the circular relationship though. The only way we're able to do those things is to lean on God. God's grace helps us and we go back to God's grace so God can help us be what we're supposed to be to our spouses and our children and our schools and the people around us, right? And Jesus was the perfect example of this. Now, the whole entire Bible is the gospel, right? The good news about God and our relationship with him. The whole Bible is the gospel. But the specific gospels, the story of Jesus on earth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
The reason why those first four books of the New Testament are so vitally important is it shows us how God would react if he was a person, right? If he was like one of us. People used to wear the what would Jesus do bracelets. We know what he would do because we have the gospels. And so it's not only how Jesus lived, we also see how God would respond to death. And his death opened up the door for us. It opened up the door for the Holy Spirit to reside in us. The death, burial, and resurrection gave us, you and I, the ability to live similarly to Christ. Not just like him, because he's perfect, and we're not gonna be perfect until we get to heaven, but we can live like him. That's what the word Christian means, right? To follow in the ways of Christ. We can be connected with our heavenly Father. And we're to answer this call, guys. We're to accept this following Jesus thing at all costs. Look at the Apostle Paul. Paul accepted Jesus' teachings, he accepted Christ, he accepted his calling, and it killed him, literally. Now, we don't know all the details of Paul's life, we know a pretty good chunk, but not all the details. But when Paul became a Christian, he probably lost all of his friends, all of his family. We don't know it for a fact, but a lot of theologians believe Paul was married and his wife more than likely left him when he became a Christian. Paul gave up everything for his faith. When he became a teacher of the gospel, when he started traveling and and answering his call to do ministry, it eventually cost him his head. His head was chopped off by Caesar. And so it eventually cost him everything. But he was able to endure all that hardship because he had faith. He 100% believed. He said, I am persuaded. Maybe the three most important words in the entire Bible. I am persuaded. He knew that God was good. He knew that God was trustworthy. He knew that even if he had to give his life, he would wake up in paradise with God. Now, here's the thing. More than likely, none of us in this room will have to die for our faith. More than likely. We will not have to die for our faith. But we have to be willing to if the time were to come. We have to settle in our hearts, even right now, that if it were to come, that we would die for our faith. So the question is this, are we really willing to give up everything for our faith? I think a better question is this. I think if you have a gun to your head and someone says, do you believe in Christ? I think it's easy to say, yes, I love and identify with my maker when you're about to meet your maker. I think it's a lot harder to live for Christ. We often say we would die for him. Okay, that's great. Will you live for him on Tuesday? Will you live for him on Friday night? Will you live for him throughout the week when work is terrible and things aren't going the way you want them to and you don't have a ton of money and the fridge is getting empty? Sometimes it's easier to die for something than it is to live for it. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to do this day after day after day until Christ comes back? Now the last part. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that all those in the province of Asia, that's not Asia, that's actually Western Turkey, have deserted me, including Phagilus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. That's a tough one. Because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. 
On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtained mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. Who in the heck are these guys and why is Paul talking about them? I'll get to that here in a second. What Paul says to Timothy right here is he says, hold on to sound teaching, the pattern of sound teaching. Now, let me tell you what sound teaching is according to Paul, right? And according to the Bible. This book right here from Genesis to Revelation is the only inspired word of God that has ever been written, right? This is where we get our theology. Theology is just a fancy word for the study of God, right? This is where we get our theology. What Paul is saying is this, and I think some of you maybe in this room need to hear this. Not that there's not other good commentaries or other good books that show us context or history or might help us understand this a little bit better. But any theology outside of this book is not of God. Now, I know that seems very simple, but we live in a day and age where even a lot of very, very big churches in Middle Tennessee are getting away from the idea that this is the only inspired word of God, but this is it. And though some of these things are a little bit harder to understand than others, and some of it is historical, every single word of this book is there because God wanted it there, and it means something, okay? This is the sound teaching that Paul was talking about. And we study this, or at least we should, we read this, we teach this, not so we can get in arguments on Facebook. We don't read this so your Arminiist friends and your Calvinistic friends can argue right publicly. And if you don't know what those two things are, you're probably better off, right? So we don't study this thing so we can think we're smarter than everyone or better than everyone or judge people and treat people poorly. That's not why we do this. Paul doesn't advocate studying the scripture just so we can be intellectualists, right? The reason why we read the Bible, the reason why the scripture is so important is it applies to our daily lives. It applies to how you work. It applies to how you treat your spouse. It applies to how you raise your children. It applies to how you spend your money. It applies to you finding purpose and fulfillment and joy and contentment. It's a very practical book. It's very, very good for daily living. That's why God gave it to us. Not so we can think we're better than everyone else, but because we can live a closer life to how God wants us to live. That's why we have that book. That's why it's important that we read that book. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, guard it. Not just the book, but these teachings. Your faith, guard it, protect it. Every single generation, that's us, right? Every single generation has been charged by God to hand down and protect the truth to the next generation. We're to protect the integrity of the church. We're to protect the integrity of the word of God. We're to protect the integrity of Jesus Christ. Again, what does that mean? It means we have to pray. We have to have a relationship with him. It means we need to read the word of God. We can't protect the truth if we don't even know what the truth is. That's why so many churches are falling into bad theology, because so few pastors teach the word of God. So their congregations are biblically illiterate. We're to defend the sound teaching. Why? I say this all the time. Because everything is on the line. If this book helps us with our families, our marriages, our work, our finances, everything, if it helps us with that, and if we don't read that, all those things are going to suffer. 
So why know that book? Why read that book? Why pray? Why go to church? Why live a godly life? Because everything's on the line. Everything is on the line. But here's what's interesting. As much as we know, as much as we pray, as much of the good things that we do, we really can't change anything, kind of. The Bible says that we're to plant seeds, we're to water those seeds, but it is God that gives the growth. It is God that makes things happen. So what is our responsibility? Our responsibility is to respond to God. First and foremost, if you're in this room and you don't have a relationship with God, maybe today God is saying, hey, I wanna know you. I want you to know me. Our first responsibility is to say, okay, God, I wanna know you. I wanna follow you. I wanna give my life to you. We're to trust him. We're to express love to people around us. It's our responsibility. It's our responsibility to follow the Bible and to communicate the love of Jesus to people around us. Listen, we can't change the world. That's a bad narrative. We can't do it. But God can use us to do it. So I can't change my kids, right? I cannot save my children, my 10-year-old and my 7-year-old daughter. I cannot save them. But if I love them well, if I'm a good father and husband around them, if I teach them the word of God, if I buy them a Bible, show them how to read it, pray with them, I can't save them, but I can be a catalyst for them being saved. I cannot save my city, but I can love people that are different from me. I can show hospitality and grace and mercy. I can get involved in nonprofits. I can pray for the community around me. And though I can't change them, I can open the door for God to change them. We can be the catalyst. We can be the instrument. And the sad part of that, though, is some people don't want that. Some people will reject the faith. Some people will seemingly accept it and then eventually walk away. That's who these people are that Paul's talking about. The first two of them, whose names I really struggle with, said they were believers, but when times got tough, they walked away. Sound familiar? Happens in our culture all the time, right? In a lot of our churches, if one of our churches or one of our pastors says something that someone doesn't like, we just step up and walk away. I love God, but I don't love him so much that I wanna change. I don't love him so much that I wanna go through hardships for him, right? I love the fact that Jesus hung on a cross for nine hours, but I'm busy. Sorry, I'll just move on. But even though a lot will walk away, there's gonna be some that rise up. There's gonna be some good ones. And so Paul mentions this one guy, we're gonna call him one because his name is super long. <laughs> but Paul mentions this guy and he says, man, this guy became a Christian and he came and visited me in the prisons in Rome. Now, most of you in here, we do a prison ministry here. That's not a huge deal in our day and age. You can go visit people in prison. In Roman era, if you went and visited someone in prison, the Roman government probably thought you were in on a crime too. It was very dangerous to visit people in prison. But this man, one, right, he didn't care. He said, I'm gonna go see the man of God. I'm gonna minister to Paul. I don't care what people think about me, I'm a Christian. I follow Christ. And Paul said, this guy is gonna receive mercy. This guy is gonna receive grace because God honors us when we honor him. And Paul lifts this up at the end and ends on kind of this positive note, right? God's gonna give this guy grace. Listen, I'm gonna get a little deep here for a second. 
the choices we make in life, man, I hope, I, I hope some of you in this room really kind of like ponder this, meditate this today. The choices we make in life determine the direction we're going to go. I know that's very simple, right? But even the seemingly little things that we do, instead of hanging out with our kids, I'm going to play this game or watch this football game or whatever, and instead of spending time with my family, these little choices that we make every day, they start to determine the route we go. Now listen, let's all agree today, or if not, just humor me for a second. Let's all agree. We cannot be the ones who change things, but God can change things through us, right? He can use us. We can plant seeds. We can water the ground, but I think all of us agree that it's God that makes things happen. God is the one that actually does the change, the work, if you will. So understanding that all we can do is prepare the soil, cultivate the ground, build relationships, whatever, however we want to frame this, right? We can just do the prep work, but it's God that does the growing, the changing, the evolving, right? God does that. If we understand this principle, it makes sense that we can't expect God to do anything if we haven't planted the seed and watered it. I can't expect, if you're in here and you're a farmer, right? Well, why isn't there any corn in that field? Well, you haven't planted any seed or watered anything. Well, but I'm expecting corn. When nothing is planted and when nothing is being watered, you can't expect anything to grow. You can't expect a result. The great philosopher Henry Rollins said, right? Like, no deposit, no return. It's a black flag song. No deposit, no return, but it's true. We can't expect anything out when we have not put anything in. So what that means is our families, our relationships, our jobs, our knowledge, our contentment and fulfillment and our purpose, our salvation depends on us preparing the soil, preparing ourselves preparing our family, preparing our marriage, preparing society, our schools, everything around us, that we're not going to see Jesus do great things around us if we don't make Jesus-centered choices. So, so many people say, well, I never hear from God. But you don't ever talk to God. There's no seed planted, therefore there's nothing that comes in return. Well, my finances never change. Well, the Bible says in Malachi chapter three that if you don't give what is God's, it actually says you're cursed, but I, I won't go there. But the reason why there's no return or financial stability is you haven't planted that seed. You haven't, you haven't trusted God with that part of your life and so therefore he can't make anything happen there. With our families, while well, my marriage is falling apart, we haven't cultivated marriages we haven't made Christ the center of marriages, the center of families, the center of our, our workplace, the center of our schools. And that doesn't mean that we put it on the schools, but that we take the light into those places and talk to people about God and foster relationships. No deposit, no return, right? No seeds planted, no crops grown. The Bible says that a man will reap what he sows, but if there's nothing sown into the ground, there's nothing to reap. There's nothing that comes up from that. And so let me ask you about seeds and watering. 
Are we planting the seed of good theology in ourselves? And are we planting the seed of good theology in the generation coming up after us? That means, guys, are we even taking the time to read this word and understand how God operates? You know, whenever I'm at like a coffee shop or I'm talking to someone, it's like, well, I don't think God would do that. And I'm like, what's your reference point for that? You being God or the actual word of God? What is your reference? Well, I don't think Jesus would do that. Jesus would be a Republican. Jesus would be a Democrat. No, Jesus wouldn't really care. <laughs> but what's your thinking on that? Where do you come up with these conclusions? Is it just your own thoughts or is it good theology from the word of God? Are we making a choice to plant the seed of good theology? Are we willing to suffer for our faith? Are we cultivating the ground? Are we planting and watering the ground around us that when tough times come, right? Again, that's something farmers do is they prepare for inclement weather and bad things that can happen. They prepare the ground for that. So when it happens, that they can still get crops and they can still make it. Are we willing to suffer for our faith? Not just die for it. Are we willing to live for it? Every Wednesday, every Thursday, Every Saturday night, when times get tough, are we willing to live for it? Are we investing in what's truly important? Do you know the Bible says that a good man leaves an inheritance for his grandchildren? Now, it's not necessarily just talking about money, right? What that's talking is, is, is that we're to live in such a way to where it not only affects the generation under us, but maybe it affects two generations below us. That a good person leaves an, an inheritance even for their grandchildren. What are we investing in? So many people are working themselves to death to get that house or that car or that promotion. And there's nothing wrong with that house or that car or that promotion. But if your wife and your kids are suffering for that house, they're suffering for the wrong thing. What are we investing in? We need to invest in the things that transcend this life and go on into the next life. Each other, right? Our relationship with God, loving those that are lost and sharing the gospel with them. What are we investing in? Do we love others? Really, you should be honest with yourself on this one. I'll be honest, there's sometimes I don't. I was out yesterday, I don't know why I chose to do this yesterday. I was right before church, I'm doing this big yard project and I went and got all these huge like river stones and scooping all these things out and building this thing in my yard. And My wife comes out there and we're talking about this Epstein guy, right? Probably one of the most evil people that's been in the news in a long time. Horrible things that this guy has done. And he committed suicide, right? And my wife was literally in tears and the more I was working, I got to thinking about it as well. As evil as this man was, that guy is going to suffer an eternal torment forever. And that's terrible. Like that hurt me, that broke my heart. As evil as that guy is, I wish he could have been saved. I wish that he could have been redeemed and I believe God could have done it. Do we love people so much that even when they're at their worst, even when they're awful, listen, Corey, that's nuts. Jesus was being nailed to a hunk of wood and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus loved even the Roman soldiers. And it later on says in the gospel that, that eventually one of them hit their knees and realized that he had had a part in killing the son of God. Maybe he got saved, right? Do we love people? 
Would we consider ourselves faithful? Yes, Corey, I'm faithful. I go to church once a month. I never read my Bible or pray, but I'm faithful. I'm a Christian. Do you know why we do announcements four times at this church? We'll do, like if we have an event, we announce it at least four weeks in a row. Do you wanna know why? Because the average Christian in the United States goes to church once a month. And if they show up on time, they'll get to hear that announcement once. <laughs> Guys, I think our definition of faithful is kind of skewed, and I'm not sure if it really means what it's supposed to mean. Are we faithful? Are we faithful? What if you, what if you only saw your wife once a month? What if you never talked to her? What if you never took her out? What if you were never intimate with her? Would you consider that faithful? But we do the same thing to God, don't we? And we think we're Christians. We, we, we're faithful, right? I don't know if we are. Be honest. Here's the main point that I want you to chew on today. I want you to think about this and maybe even take it home and look at it again and really contemplate this. Listen, God will only do to us and through us and in us what we allow God to do. Jesus himself said, I stand at the door and knock. The Lord's ready to rock and roll in our lives, but you know what we have to do? We have to get up and open the door right? God will only do in our lives what we give him permission to do. He will only do in our lives what we invite him in to do. Now that being said, here's where I want you to think. Are you and I preparing the soil around us for God to do something amazing? Are we praying for our city? Are we praying for our school systems? Are we praying with our wife and our children, our husband? Are we loving people? Are we reading the word of God? Are we preparing our hearts? Are we laying the foundation for God to build something great? Something that not only resonates to your children, but that will resonate to your children's children. Are we doing that? Well, Corey, I don't ever see God move. You haven't, let, you, you haven't planted the seed. You haven't watered it. It's no wonder nothing's growing. There's been no prep work. There's been no, 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 no intentionality in opening up the door for God to come in and work in your life. No wonder why things aren't happening. Because we don't expect things to happen, right? We don't live preparing and expecting for God to work. So the question is, are you and I doing things? Are we setting up the next generation? Are we building the healthy marriages? Are we praying for the people around us? Are we planting and watering? And if we do that, if we're faithful, God will be faithful. God will honor the work we put into it. He will make something come up out of those seeds, out of that watering, out of that prep. Would you bow your heads with me, please? <sighs> up here to my right, your left, Greg's up here, he's wearing a striped shirt. If you're in this room and maybe you're not a Christian, Maybe you uh, were, were talked into coming here today. Maybe you were just curious, wanted to check it out. If you have any questions, Greg is one of our pastors. Nice guy, humble guy. He'd love to talk to you. If you have any questions about what we're doing, any questions about the Bible, 
Any questions about what we believe, please come up here and, and, and talk to him. If you're in this room and you need prayer for anything, anything, there are men and women on both sides of the stage. Listen, if you need prayer for something, not just preparing the soil yourself, get a couple of men and women to help you prepare the soil with you. Get a couple of other strong backs in there, tilling the soil, planting the seed, watering it. Join with your brothers and sisters in prayer. The last thing is we have communion all the way around this room, 16 tables, I believe. Get that communion today. Ask God to forgive you of your sins. Take that body and blood, the bread and the wine, and maybe contemplate, God, am I planting seeds? Am I watering? Lord, I know you're faithful. I know you'll honor me. Maybe ask God, God, how can I do this better? Give me strength. Guys, the Holy Spirit that we talked about today will give you the strength. When our flesh is weak, he is strong. The spirit can be strong. He will help you. He will empower you. We haven't been given this spirit of fear and cowering away. We've been given a spirit of power, sound judgment, that we can be what God wants us to be. Father, Lord, I love you, God. I thank you so much for this church. God, as we take communion, as we get prayer, Lord, I pray that you just bless the men and women in this room. God, give us strength. Lord, let us prepare, not just for the generation to come, but two generations away. Lord, we love you, God. Bless the marriages in this room. Bless the families. Bless the single people in this room, God. Bless the people who go to the public schools in this room, God, and the private schools, and MTSU, and Motlow students, God, Lord. All of us in this room, whatever our lot in life is, Father, Lord, let us be planting, let us be watering, let us be leaning on you, God. Lord, let us trust in you. We love you, we thank you, we pray all these things in your son's name, God, in Jesus' name. Amen, I love you guys so much. You're welcome to help yourself. Thank you, guys.